Our second reading and the one on which the sermon's based today is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 10. Uh, we've picked out four passages from Isaiah for the Christmas season and the Advent season. Each of them uh, foretells the birth of a great king. And this morning we see that very clearly. Uh, a son of David who will be greater than David will be born. Uh, let's read about him this morning. This is the word of the Lord. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Amen? How do you react inside? Like, how do you feel when you see something going wrong? Uh, anything going wrong. It could be a small thing, could be a big thing. How do you feel? How do you respond? Uh, I think it's probably the, the most strong emotion that you can imagine, at least in my experience. When you see something wrong, just something in us just can't sit still. It's like we got to speak up or do something. Uh, in fact, a lot of times when we get that feeling, it's so strong that it causes us to do things that we later regret or say things that we later regret. Uh, I was at my uh, son's soccer game last week, a soccer tournament. And y'all, if you don't believe what the Bible says about human beings... Uh, go to a child's sporting event, um, and you'll see it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly of humanity as the Bible presents it right there. You don't even need to read the Bible to believe what the Bible teaches, right? At least in that case. Uh, I was there, and man, it was, a, it was quite the, the show last week. It was the playoffs, so everybody was amped up. Uh, the parents yelling at the referees, the referees yelling back at the parents, the coaches yelling at kids, the kids yelling back at the parents who were yelling at them. Uh, yeah, it, it was wild. It, it was truly wild. And I thought, you know, it's funny because the reason why all those parents are acting like that is because they thought they saw something wrong. Wrong call, my kid's not getting enough play in time, whatever it is, they saw something wrong and they just had to do something about it. But it reminded me. Even though we see things are wrong and we know something must be done, we are terrible at actually setting it right. Absolutely terrible at it. In fact, mostly we make things worse. 
when we try to make, set things right. The Bible enters at this point and says, here's why you need a king. This is why you need a king. You say, wait a minute, I'm an American. We don't need a king. Well, the Bible also comes back and says there's only really been one good king in all of history. There's, one, there's been one good king in all of history. He's the one described here in Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah uh, is living at the end of Israel's kingdom, so to speak. The, the house of David was about to fall forever, seemingly, until a great king, a greater than David, was going to arise in his line, and he was going to be the one good king to finally set everything right forever because he was going to work in a very different way than you and I work when we see what's wrong and what's evil. I want you to notice in your bulletin, there are three things that Isaiah shows us about King Jesus. Three things. First of all, he shows us his person. Who who is he? What, What qualifies him to be the king of all kings? Secondly, he shows us his work and how he goes about it. And then lastly, he shows us his kingdom, where his reign will eventually lead us one day as a people and as in really the whole world. So first of all, let's look at the person of Jesus. Look at verse 1 again. Notice how Jesus is described by Isaiah 700 years before the fact. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Isn't that an interesting way to describe Jesus' birth? A shoot coming up out of a stump. Uh, When you cut a tree down and you leave the stump, maybe you've done this, and you don't grind the stump, what happens? More trees grow back. Usually, more trees grow back. In fact, a lot of times, more than one tree will, will start to sprout out from that same stump. All kinds of branches will be there. Just give it like a year or two. And that's what this picture is here in Isaiah 11, verse 1. Uh, think about the house of David because of the sin of Israel and because of the sin of David and his children. Remember, there's only one good king in history. And even David, who was, you know, of all the human kings, the greatest. I think we can say that. David was the greatest of all the human kings that Israel ever knew. And yet even he was a sinner. And eventually, because of his sin, his house would be leveled and become just a stump. But out of that stump, just like it does in the natural world, God was going to cause supernaturally to arise a shoot. Just a tiny little branch, a tiny twig. We said last week, God's solution to the world's problems was a baby. That's an amazing thing. Every Christmas, you ought to think about that. God's solution to the world's problems is a baby, an infant crying in a manger. Just to show how much more powerful God and his goodness is than the kings of this earth in their evil. He can conquer through a baby. Through a shoot, through a tiny little branch coming up out of a stump. When Jesus was born into the family of David, which he was, his mother and his father both descended from David. We read about that in Matthew and in Luke. They have the family tree of Jesus right there, both coming from David's line. And yet, you know this about Mary and Joseph, they were poor. That's how bad David's house had become. The king's family was a poor family, barely getting by. And out of that poor family came a little tiny baby who would conquer the world. How can that be? Well, look at this. This is amazing. I want to amaze you this morning because the Bible is amazing. Jesus is amazing. Look at verse 10. 
The shoot from the root is also called what? Verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. Listen to this. Jesus, the shoot from the root, is also the root itself. The branch coming out of the stump is also the roots giving life to the stump. Uh, Isaiah is, is contemplating here the miracle of the incarnation. The miracle that God himself would enter into human form in that baby who would come in Jesse's line. He would not just be the son of David, he would be David's Lord too. He is both the root of his own family tree and the offspring of his own family tree. How many of y'all could say that about yourself? You're the root of your own family tree and you spring from your family tree. Zero, no, no one else besides Jesus can say that. And that, y'all, is what qualifies Jesus to be a king of all kings. He does not, he never did fall into the traps you and I fall in when we see something wrong and we just go out and start yelling and start hurting people and start trying to get back at people. He doesn't fall into those traps because Jesus, a perfect man, was also at the same time perfect God. The holiness, the goodness, the righteousness, the truth, the wisdom of God fully dwelled within the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the days of his life, from the moment of his conception all the way to the time when he rose from the dead and ascended on high, and there he sits just as he is, glorious God-man, sitting now in heaven, reigning over the whole world. Y'all, I want to tell you something. If you're not amazed at that, pray that God would amaze you at something in your life. Right? Because if you're not amazed at that, I don't see how anything else is going to amaze you. Now, now you might say, well, I don't even believe that. Okay, I grant you that. If this is not true, there's no reason for us to be here, right? Christianity is a faith based on facts. It's not just an idea. It's not just a philosophy for you to, you know guide your life by it's it's based on the idea that either a god really did get born as a human being in bethlehem 2000 years ago or b he didn't and if b he didn't then we're wasting our time this morning folks but if a he did those who aren't here are wasting their time and they're wasting it mightily those who've not been baptized or who've not come to the table of Jesus, who've not come with faith to the Lord, are wasting their life, if this is really true. we we got to hear that. Sometimes it's good for us to be out of our depth a little bit. It's good for the human heart, especially in our age where we feel like we can literally research and understand just about anything and encapsulate it in our little tiny minds. It's good for us to come to theology, <laughs> A place where we're just overwhelmed by the majesty of how great God is. I can't profess this morning to explain to you how God becomes a human being in the womb of a teenage girl. I have no idea. But I know that the scripture says it happened. And I know that many, many, many have believed it happened. And through believing it happened, including myself standing in front of you, our lives have been changed because it did happen. Isn't that good? Just let yourself swim 
in the deep sea of what God did for you in Jesus this morning. Let your, let your heart worship. Let your mind get lost a little bit. Uh, we, we get caught up in such little things in life, don't we? We lose our wonder and amazement because we're only staring at just little things. Rather than understanding that even the little things in life are soaked with wonder because of this wonder. They're soaked in the light of the Christian story. Listen to how one writer describes it. He says, in the Christian story, God descends in order to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity. Further still, if the embryologists are right, to recapitulate in the womb the ancient and pre-human phases of life down to the very roots and seedbed of nature that he created. But he goes down to come up again to bring the whole ruined world up with him. That's C.S. Lewis. That's good. Jesus not only was the root of Jesse's family, he was the root of yours. Your family. Our families. This, uh, us as people, he's our root. But y'all, he's also the shoot that came all the way down to the root so that he might heal what was broken. Are you amazed by that? Have you thought about Christmas that way lately? We sing such profound songs at Christmas. Uh, you, you, you walk through Walmart even, and there's the profoundest theology coming through the... I, I always just feel weird about that, you know? I'm on aisle five, you know, and we're talking about the incarnate deity. It's amazing what happens at Christmas. Don't let yourself lose the amazement because it's background noise or because it's old hat or because you're so obsessed with little things. Let yourself look. Let yourself wonder. The root of Jesse became the shoot of Jesse to heal the whole world. That's the person of Jesus. Secondly, I want you to see the work of Jesus, the work he came to do. Uh, in verses 2 through 5, Isaiah describes how Jesus goes about the work of a king. He, he does it in a very unique way. The first thing we see is that he's filled with the Holy Spirit to do it. It says, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on Jesus. He'll rest on Jesus. The Old Testament is filled with... Um, you know, filled with stories about the Spirit of God working. But normally, the Spirit in the Old Testament, uh, not to say this is all that he did, but normally it's described as he rushed on a person, and in that moment, that person was able to do something great. The Spirit rushes in, and then boom, you know, Samson's able to kill the Philistines. It's, the Spirit rushes on Moses, and psh, the Red Sea parts, stuff like that. But here it says, this king, the Spirit will rest on him. Isn't that what happened when Jesus was baptized? The voice of the Father from heaven, but then the dove, you know, the, the, the symbol of the Holy Spirit came and lighted on Jesus. He came and stayed with him to show that all of Jesus' life was lived in the power of the Spirit. In fact, Jesus didn't receive the Spirit at his baptism. Of course, he already had the Spirit. We know that because what did the angel tell Mary? Mary, the child born in you will be holy and will be the Son of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And what is born in you will be born of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Jesus' very conception came from the Holy Spirit. And then every step of his life after, he lived in dependence on the Holy Spirit. 
That's a marvelous thing. Jesus was a man, but sometimes we think, yeah, but he was God, so he kind of like had a bunch of cheat codes to get through life. You know, kids, y'all know what, might know what cheat codes are on video games. You know, you just, you have the special things, you point, maybe that was just when I was a kid with Mario. But I don't know if they have it anymore, but we used to have cheat codes to help you get through real easy. Jesus did not use cheat codes. This is a mar- If Jesus had used cheat codes, he couldn't have saved people like us. He had to live a human life. As human beings like you and I are called to live it, he had to depend on prayer. Jesus had to pray. He had to fast. He had to come to church. He had to read the Bible. He had to sing the Psalms and other hymns. Jesus had to ask God to continue to put forth his hand and to give him the Holy Spirit to help him do what he was called to do. Isn't that cool? The Spirit rested on him. And what did it produce? The Spirit produced character in Jesus. Deep Awesome human character like no man has ever had before a day in their life. Sometimes we think, and this is very popular, that when the Spirit comes on a person, here's how you know. They start doing crazy things in church. You know you know the Spirit's come on somebody because they're yelling out and doing backflips down the aisle. Which literally I've, I've seen happen. <laughs> and yeah, that may speak to someone being super excited Potentially. I mean, obviously they're excited, right? We can't, we got to hand it that. The person yelling out and backflipping is excited. But you know, the Bible never says that's how you know the Holy Spirit's come on a person. Never, not once. Not once does it say that crazy, ecstatic experiences are the sign that the Spirit is on them. Here's what it says You know the Spirit's on a person because they love, they got joy, they got peace, they got patience, they got kindness. They got gentleness. They got self-control. That's how you know the Spirit's in you. And that's how we know that Jesus Christ had the Holy Spirit. Because look at what it says. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Jesus knew how to judge things appropriately. He knew how to be patient. He knew how to take his time. When to speak. When not to speak. The Spirit of counsel and of might. As a king, he knew how to lead people. He knew how to take people along and build them up and give them courage so that they could join him in the battle. He had counsel and he had might. And then lastly, he had the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That was the main thing. He understood God. He knew God. That's how you know the Holy Spirit's in you. You know God personally. You know about him, but you also know him, the one whom you know about. And critically, you will fear the Lord. That's what characterized Jesus more than anything, the fear of the Lord. I think sometimes we think, you know, the fear of the Lord, that's, a, that's an Old Testament thing, right? Tell me it's an Old Testament thing, Stan, where people trembled and got scared and God's fire came down and people died. And, well, that's scary. We don't want that. We're New Testament. Tell me. Please tell me that. I can't tell you that. Because the New Testament also says we ought to walk out, work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2. In fear and trembling. The Bible says we should worship God with reverence and fear. When the Bible says we should fear the Lord, it doesn't mean we should be so terrified of Him we run away. 
Actually, that is a sinful kind of fear that Jesus solves through the cross. Right? He solves that problem. The fear of the Lord in the Bible, though, is a healthy sense of God's weightiness resting on your life. A healthy sense of God's weightiness. You have joy in the Lord, but that joy is a weighty joy. Whew. It's a profound joy. It's not just a flippant you know, joy. It's a profound joy. You have reverence of God, but it's not just a lip service reverence. It's a profound, deep reverence of God. That's what characterized Jesus. Jesus adored his Father. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And therefore, he was able to do a work that nobody else was able to do. You see, if you do not fear the Lord, you cannot be a truly moral person. Hmm? Do you believe it? Maybe you don't believe it. I know a lot of people don't believe that, especially today. I can be good without God. I don't have to have all that religion stuff. Why do I need that? I just be a good person. I don't believe you can. And I dare you to show me. I dare you to show me you can. The Bible says you can't. And actually, many people recognize this. Uh, there's a professor named Dr. Uh, Ferendi, who's, or Ferretti, I, I think is his name, Ferretti. He's at a, a university over in England, and he wrote a book recently called um, How Fear Works. How Fear Works. He's not a believer, so that's why I'm, I'm bringing this up. And yet, in this whole book, he argues this. We are, we are so fearful in our modern culture today because we have lost our sense of moral authority. We're afraid of everything because we've lost moral authority. We don't know where morals come from. We don't know who gets to say. And so it's left life kind of adrift. Everybody's having to figure life out on their own. Therefore, fear pervades everything. Fear fills it all. It turns out, y'all, the Bible's been right all along. When you don't fear God, you're going to fear everything else. And therefore, you're not going to be able to live like you're supposed to live loving other people well. Because you're afraid of one thing or another. But when you fear God, you don't have to fear anything else. And therefore, you will be able to listen to what God has to say. And you will be, you will be able to love people truly, sincerely, from the heart. You really can't be a moral person and be afraid of anything except God. Think about that. This is why the kings of Israel failed consistently. This is why David's family was a stump. David and all the rest of them feared things more than they feared God. And it led them to do all kinds of evil. When I do evil things, when you do evil things, it's because I fear things more than I fear God. I'd rather lie to get out of a uh, someone else being mad at me than having God mad at me because I lied. I mean, is that not what I'm doing? Is it not what you're doing? You can't be moral unless you fear the Lord. And yet, in Jesus, what do we see? The fear of the Lord comes to humanity as a gift of the Holy Spirit. As a gift of the Holy Spirit that he builds into our lives. You can look there at verses 3 to 5 and see just how moral and upstanding Jesus was as a king. Because he feared the Lord. He judged not by what his eyes saw. He, he wasn't a, a biased or partial judge. He was fair. He gave justice to the poor, it says. People who fear men don't usually regard the poor, do they? Because the poor are really easy to dismiss. 
because they're not going to be able to do thing, anything back at you. <laughs> but Jesus, it said, went to the poor. He cared for those who were in need and those who were least and last and lost, as they say, because he feared God. Now listen, uh, once uh, D.L. Moody one time said, uh, and you, you might not know D.L. Moody, but he was a famous pastor in the 1800s. He said, the world has yet to see, he said, the world has yet to see what God might do with a man wholly given over to God. And I think, yeah, that's generally true about us. But D.L. Moody, it's not true about the history of the world. We have seen what God might do with a man totally given over to God, and that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He was right about us, but, you know. Maybe he wasn't thinking, he obviously wasn't classing Jesus in that statement that he made. But the Bible says, you and I, because of the uniqueness of how Jesus goes about his work, we ought to treasure him. Treasure him. In a time when we've lost our moral authority, when we fear everything more than we fear God, everybody's looking for somebody to follow. A leader. Political leader. Maybe a cultural leader, a influencer on Instagram or wherever, whatever it is we're on, TikTok, you know. All that's well and good for what it's worth. But let me tell you, every other leader will let you down. Jesus will never let you down because he's like this. Therefore, treasure the leadership and the influence of Jesus in your life. He ought to be the biggest influencer. In your life. You ought to listen to him more than you listen to anyone or anything else. Also, you ought to treasure the gift God has given you. Let me tell you something else amazing. I want to amaze you this morning. Because the gospel is amazing. The same spirit that filled Jesus and rested on him and made him like this. Fear of the Lord, moral person. Is the same spirit given to us when we believe. Just as surely as that, you know, in a baptism when water is poured out on somebody's head, just as surely as that happens, when someone believes, just as surely the Holy Spirit is poured out from heaven to come and rest forever on that person. And the first thing he starts to do in your life, here's how you know you have the Holy Spirit. He starts to cause you to fear the Lord. That's the first thing he does. It's a great way to examine your heart this morning, I think. How much do you fear God? How, how weighty is he to you? How much do you treasure him? How little does he mean to you? And I think all of us would have to admit sometimes he means way too little to us. Way too little. Let's ask this morning for the Holy Spirit to work. Thirdly, we see his kingdom. In verses 6 through 10, uh, Isaiah brings up one of his favorite pictures. He, he says this three or four times in the whole book of Isaiah. This whole thing about wolves and lambs uh, laying down together, uh, lep uh, leopards and goats flocking together. I mean, just picture it in your mind this morning. If, 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 you're, if I lost you, wake back up and then picture this. <laughs> wolves and sheep in the same flock. Leopards and goats in the same pen. And they're all alive at the end of the day. Imagine kids playing with vipers. That's scary. Imagine lions and cows in the same pasture, eating the same hay. Isn't that amazing? 
what's the, what's the big deal there? I mean, is, is this some kind of like ecological message being you know, given here? Well, kind of, I guess. I mean, creation will be restored and renewed, yes, for sure. And the, the death and the destruction that we find in, in nature will be cured by Jesus too. But I think there's something more here. Notice how old hostilities in the kingdom of Jesus are being put aside. Think about it. How could you get, could, could you train a wolf to flock with the lamb but not kill the lamb? Could you do that? Could you train a leopard to not eat the ox? Could you train a viper not to bite a child who's carrying it around? Answer is no. I don't, I don't think you can. I mean, if you have a different idea, tell me after. But I don't think you can do that. I think there's more than training involved. Listen to this. There's more than just training involved when we lay, if we're going to lay aside old hostilities. A new nature must be involved. The only way a wolf and a lamb would lay down together is if the wolf changed and the lamb changed completely. Totally different nature. Totally different kind of wolf. Totally different kind of lamb. And this is what this is saying. The kingdom of Jesus is like that. God comes and he changes the nature of people. In the new birth, when you're born again, he changes your nature. Even as one day he's going to change all of nature, he changes your nature now. If anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation has come. Change of nature. So that we can begin to lay aside the old hostilities that bound us up. So that we could begin to live as people of peace in a world of violence and in a world of ruin and wreckage. A people who build instead of tear down. Isn't that amazing? It says there in verse 10 that Jesus is doing this sort of in a two-stage process. In that day, it says, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner to rally the nations. That's the first stage. And then his resting place will be glorious. That's the second stage. And the reason why I say it's two stages is in Romans chapter 15, Paul quotes this verse to describe the spread of the gospel here and now by the church. He says, as the church goes out and shares the gospel, it's really Jesus standing in heaven to rally the nations to himself. When the preacher stands up, it's Jesus in heaven rallying people to his cause. When you go out and share your faith with your neighbors and friends, Jesus standing on high rallying people to himself. Isn't that cool? He stands to rally so that one day he can sit in glory. He stands to rally so that one day he can sit in glory. That means you and I this morning, we live in the kingdom of heaven, but between the standing and the sitting. Uh, sometime this week, I guarantee, I know all the kids will have your last, most of you will have your last day of school before Christmas. And most of us adults, either sometime this week or next, will have that last day of work before Christmas. Think about that day. How, does that, how is that day? Isn't that a fun day? It's a great day. And it's great for a couple of reasons. One, it's a busy day a lot of times, right? You're standing a lot that day because you're having to scramble to get everything done before you go on vacation so it's not waiting for you at New Year's, right? You're scrambling. But you're also joyfully anticipating how you're going to get to sit down. 
and rest in glory with your family. Isn't that cool? It's just like that here in the kingdom of heaven now. Christ's kingdom has already started in a sense. We live in it. If you're a new creation in Christ, you're in it. And your job under the king who reigns on high is to live according to that kingdom's values here and now. Laying aside old hostilities. This is why a, an angry and violent Christian is an oxymoron. A racist Christian, oxymoron. Right? It's, it's why it is. Because you can't live according to the values of that kingdom if you still are hanging on to old hostilities, which we know that kingdom is going to fully flush out one day. Do you get that? It just doesn't make sense. We're called to live now as if Jesus really is standing in heaven rallying people to his cause, because he is. But we're also called to wait. And sometimes that's the hardest thing. I say, I say it a lot, but the hardest thing to learn is to wait on God. It is. Because you're going to see things that are wrong in your life and in the world, and you're, you're going to want to do something to fix it, and you're going to try, but it's not going to work. And then you're going to try again, and it's not going to work. And then somebody else is going to try, and it's not going to work. And you're like, okay, God, do you, I mean, is this, is this Christian anything even real? Yes. In that area, it seems like God's asking you to wait. Because on that day, when the king returns again, he will sit in glory. The picture painted here, 6 through 9, will be the actual picture of a new creation. Where people and animals and everything else will be restored back to God's original glorious purpose rather than what we're facing and experiencing right now. New natures laying aside old hostilities. In other words, there are two prayers that the Bible tells us to pray. The first is this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's about Jesus standing now, rallying the nations. We're praying that right now we would taste the kingdom. You should pray that every day. Are you praying that every day as you go about your work? Your kingdom come now. Your will be done on earth now in my life as it is in heaven. But at the same time, the Bible tells us in the last verse of the Bible that we should pray, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. You see, because at the end of the day, I can't bring the kingdom in its fullness. You can't bring the kingdom. Even us together can't. There will not be any kumbaya day where the people of this world do it themselves. It will not happen as much as we would like it to. It will not. Something better will happen. Jesus, who is rallying his people to himself, will himself lead us in doing that one day. And that's greater by far. Why? Because he's the one good king. Amen? He deserves the glory for it. None of us rascals deserve a single bit of the glory. None of the kings that have lived deserve any share of this glory. No religious leader has ever deserved one ounce of this glory. Jesus Christ deserves it all. Amen?